Did you make any resolutions this year for 2023? Resolutions. <laughs> yeah, it started. Uh, it's the 15th day of the year, so it started. Well, I'm not a big resolution person either. Um, it's always a good time to start some new things. But this morning, our sermon is kind of about resolving. The disciples had to resolve to do certain things. And it, always, it keeps reminding me of this, this hymn, I Am Resolved. Here are a couple of the verses of, of that. I am resolved no longer to linger, no longer charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher and things that are nobler, these have lured my sight. Hymn number, uh, verse number three, I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth, he is the living way. And the last verse, I am resolved, and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay. Taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, we'll walk the heavenly way. Amen. Amen. I know some of you are singing it, and I would have normally maybe sung it, but that might have got a little crazy. But anyway, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Resolving, deciding, making a, a decision to do something. That's, that's what a resolution is, whether it's to diet, whether it's to quit smoking, whether it's whatever it is. It's a, it's a decision to take a stand to do something, to act on something, or act against something. Um, and we all need to, re to, to renew our resolution to follow Jesus. We need to be resolved in that. Because the world is going to tempt you and try to tease you away, take you away, convince you that you're on the wrong path. But we need to see that the first church did this. They made a resolution and that's what our, our passage is about this morning. Luke continues to tell the story of the first church and what it did and where it, where it went after this. Um, and this, thing is a pre this passage today is a precursor to when the Holy Spirit's going to arrive. So next week, the Holy Spirit's coming. So be here. Um, but Jesus told them, he gave them some commands. Stay in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem till power comes, and pray together. And they obeyed, and God began to move. So I want you to hear what this story tells us, and then we'll explore it a little deeper, starting with verse 12. Chapter 1 of Acts, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, 
so that in their own language, that field is called Hakadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter continues, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among these, it is necessary that one becomes a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in the apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, I love the richness of this short little interlude, ten days, short little space of time, but how much is packed in here showing us your kingdom. And showing us how you want to order it and guide it and direct it. So give us what we need to hear this morning, Father. Show us in your Bible what can work in our own hearts. About prayer, about waiting, and about obeying. We need your help doing that, Father. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first church gathered together and prayed in Jerusalem. That's what they were doing. And they replaced Judas. And we're going to talk about these details. And they were doing all this while they were waiting on the Holy Spirit to come, to show up. And Jesus established his church to pray over all matters and obey in the in-between while we wait for the answer. Because there's lots of obedience to do while we're waiting. So what can we learn from the first church here? What, What actions brought unity to this church as they we're waiting. This first church of Jerusalem, I think it's the first Baptist church, but I won't, I, won't be, uh, <laughs> I won't be too picky about that. But it is the first church. So Luke, Luke gives us here two events that happen in this in-between time that they still hold valid for us today, still are something we can use and we can still apply. Maybe we're not the first church, obviously, but we can still use these. Pray and obey. So number one, they gathered and prayed continually. That's point number one, verses 12 through 14. They gathered together and they prayed continually. Let me read that again for us so you can be where, in, your, in your mind where we are. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Just so you know, a Sabbath day's journey is about one kilometer. One kilometer is six-tenths of a mile, for those of you who don't do metric. So... They weren't in Bethany, like I said last week. That's my correction. That's my bad. They weren't in Bethany. They had been in Bethany, but they had come back to the Mount of Olives, and that's where they were when this happened. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrews, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So if you, if you can flip back a couple pages and look in Luke chapter 24, 52 through 53, I'm not going to read it, but Luke even records there, he says, they stayed there on the Mount of Olives for a period of time after the angels appeared to them and they worshiped and praised God. And then they came back to Jerusalem and they were in the temple and in this upper room having church, praising God constantly and praying constantly. 
So Luke kind of is overlapping his, his, uh, his accounts here so that we make a good connection between his gospel and the book of Acts. So they gathered continually. They gathered in the temple and in the temple courts, as one, one translation might say, because the women couldn't go into the, to the male part of the court of the temple. But the, they gathered in the temple courts, and they also gathered in this upper room, which is believed to be the upper room that they had the Last Supper at. Um, because someone knew the, Jesus knew somebody who owned the house, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, they gathered to praise and pray. Praise and pray, praise and pray. The, and, and the disciples were there, minus Judas. And so there's a list here. And if you compare that list with the ones in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're pretty much identical. The only here's the only differences, if you care. These are the only differences. Thaddeus is in the lists with, um, of Matthew and Mark. Thaddeus. And he is replacing the other Judas that's listed here. It's the same guy, but he's got two different names. So Thaddeus is the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. And in John... Nathaniel is discovered and made a disciple. He is Bartholomew. So Bartholomew has two names as well. I don't know why they did all that, but they do. They have, some of them have multiple names. So, But the most important thing and the wonderful thing I saw here is Luke records that there were others there. There were other people there. There were others that we may not even realize were there. You know, there used to be this joke about what was the first car mentioned in the Bible? A Honda Accord, because the disciples were in one accord. But it wasn't just the disciples. There was other people there. There was other people there. First of all, there were women. Women. Marys. The Marys. And I'm not going to go through them all. <laughs> there are a lot of them. The Marys. The Marys were there. Martha was there. Salome might have been there. There might have been others. Luke records very much in his gospel how involved women were in the ministry and, and life of Jesus Christ. So in this day and age when we're t arguing about how important women are and what part they play in church life, they're very important. They're very important. Now the Roman and Jewish culture, they saw women as property. They saw women as just servants. We would love to romanticize it that, that they saw women in the right way as wives and partners and helpers, but they didn't. But Jesus didn't allow this secular idea to permeate his ministry. He, he treated women well. Women were very important. Women were very precious. Women were valued partners in Jesus Christ's ministry. So important that they were the first sex for him to identify himself to. They're the ones who saw that he was raised from the dead. Women. But we need to understand from this that all are equal in the kingdom of God. There is no status. There is nothing special about sexes or ethnic groups or any of that kind of stuff. We're all on the same level of equal value and equal importance. Now, there are roles in the kingdom of God that vary and are, are distinguished by gender. And God set those in place, and there's going to be some more of that in some future sermons. But but everyone is important, and especially, especially when it comes to prayer. Everybody needs to be praying. Nobody needs to be slacking off in that. And now, there's some new faces in the crowd. He identifies them here at the very end of 14. And it's, it's very small. It's, it's almost, you almost will miss it. Mary, his mother. Now, we know she was at the foot of the cross when he was crucified. So we're assuming she was probably around during the resurrection time that Jesus was sh uh, showing himself to the world. But the one that got me was that his brothers were there, his biological half-brothers. 
There were at least four of them, I think, we, we know from Scripture. That's glorious. You know why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. We, we, we talked about this in Mark chapter 3. They didn't believe. They, didn't, they, did, they wanted to control Jesus. Oh, man, he's out of his mind. Let's take him home. He's, he's insane. In John chapter 7, they make fun of him. Say, oh, you need to go up to the, to the festival and show him your great works. They didn't believe. We're talking about all of them. I know Mary had some doubts, but I think Mary sometimes was, was acquiescing to what the brothers wanted to do. He had sisters, too. Jesus had sisters. It doesn't say anything about them here. More than likely, they were married at this point and with their husbands, wherever they were. They may have been in the group. They may have been part of the, the women, men and women that were there. I don't know. But I do know this. His brothers were there. At least James and Judas, or Jude, as we know him in the, in the book in the Bible, James and Jude were there. Their faith had become serious to them. And I, maybe even Jesus' resurrection appearance to his brother James, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, maybe that was the catalyst that kind of changed their hearts and showed them that, hey, our bro is the Messiah. <laughs> I, that's, just, that's just great to me. I mean, and, and when you think about the, the, the reclamation and the reconciliation and the redemption of, of Jesus' family, it matters. It makes a big difference in the prayer meeting. And when these events are folded into the group, it makes for a dynamic time. It's a testimony. But they were there, and they were continually praying in unity. Now, what did they pray for for 10 days? We know it's 10 days because Jesus left at 40, Pentecost is at 50. That's how we get the math. Well, it was a sweet hour of prayer like we just sang about. Hours and days of prayer. But I think that their prayers were probably around specific things too. First of all, Jesus had just explained to them how all the Old Testament spoke of him. All the Old Testament was fulfilled in him and his coming and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. So he, was, he had explained all that to them. But I'm sure they're going, whoa. This is, I mean, they were, they were uneducated fishermen. Don't forget that, okay? They were uneducated fishermen. They needed to think and pray about it. And so they were probably praying over digging a little deeper and understanding a little more about all of that. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written. The New Testament didn't even exist at this point. They were looking at the Old Testament, and they were trying to understand a little bit more. They probably prayed for how they, they should proceed Okay, what's, what's going to be next? You know, what's going to happen? Um, so it was praise and it was petition all at the same time. Seeking God's face about everything and praising him for what he's already done. He's already done. So when most of us read this pray continually, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, it says pray, pray without ceasing. It's not 24-7 like you're thinking, a 24-7 prayer meeting that just never ends. They did this around their tasks they're eating, they're sleeping, other things that needed to be done, the necessities of life. But they're waiting for God to fulfill the promise. And so it's a prayerful wait. It's also probably punctuated with more times of together prayer, praising and praying and over and over again. They probably prayed, how are we going to recognize that the Holy Spirit showed up? See, they didn't have a clue how he was going to show up. They just knew he was going to show up in power. But what does that even mean? Jesus had power, and you never could tell when he was going to use it. So they're probably wondering, how are we going to know? 
Well, if you've read your Bible, you know how they knew, and so it was pretty uncertain. But, but in this limbo, in this uncertain time, while they're waiting, they didn't waste it. They prayed together. They became, that became their first resort. Well, we don't know. Let's pray about it. We don't know. Let's praise God about it. For trials, for unknowns, for aid, for comfort. They, they, they didn't try to presume on God or presume they knew everything. They just prayed. I mean, I wish Abraham and Sarah had done this when they were having trouble having a baby and they decided to use Hagar. They didn't pray about that. They just did it. And they both went this way when someone started talking to them about blame. They both pointed at each other. I wish they'd have prayed. I mean, you look what happened with that. Making prayer and making patience a priority in our life is what God is calling us to do. And it saves us. <laughs> it saves us from any bad ideas. It saves us. I want you to hear what Paul says about our gathering together in prayer and learning. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul speaks of the gifts that God gives us. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. So those are all people doing their gifts. Well, what for? To prepare God's people for works of service so that we may all be built up into unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature so that we attain to the full measure of Christ. That's why we get together and we pray. We're here to equip each other and help each other learn. We're, we're here to unify each other. We're here to build each other up spiritually. We're here to help us all mature in our faith, to get better. That's the point of discipleship. Discipleship is nothing else but disciplining your life according to God's word. Disciplining your life according to God's word. Do you think our churches join together like that? Like he's ta Paul's talking about? That we're working together properly so that we grow in love for each other and for the world? How could we see that we're doing this? How could we measure this? What are the measurements? Well, there's probably a lot of ways. I'm going to give you a few here. These, these few that I'm going to give you, they show up on your newsletter every month under the spiritual matters. Be quick to confess and repent of sin. Maybe sometimes to one another, but definitely to God. Make amends when we're wrong. We've wronged others. Apologize. Make amends. James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another. We need to do that, especially if we've sinned against somebody. In Galatians 5.22-23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are involved in growing together as a church. The other one is showing our love for Jesus by obeying his word. Jesus even said this, and he said it in several places. John 14, 15 is one. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Makes it pretty obvious that if we want to show love to God and Christ, we need to obey. And I'm not talking obeying ceremonial law in the Old Testament. I'm talking about the Big Ten. I'm talking about the way Jesus talked, told us to treat each other. Another one is to discipline ourselves to live pure and holy lives, to seek to be holy before God. Leviticus 19.2, an Old Testament passage, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, I know most of you may be sitting there going, well, that can't happen. I can never be perfect like God. That's not what he's talking about. Purify your life. Get the stuff out of your life that's dragging you down, that's making you sin, that's causing you to stumble, that's holding you back from trusting God completely. That's, that's holy, making yourself holy. You might call it holyfying yourself. It's not really called that. That's a word I made up. But 
Apply God's word to your hearts and lives daily. That's another one. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture, all of this is God-breathed. He spoke it and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God can be thoroughly equipped. Just apply it to our life. Take God's word to others by serving them. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love's got to be our language here. Love's got to be what tells us to do things for one another, confess our sins. He even tells us to pray for our enemies. Love, those, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I know none of y'all have enemies, but if you do, <laughs> if you do, pray for them and love them. I've seen that do some wonderful things to people who are hard, cold, mean, uh, unresponsive, unfriendly. Spending time loving them, finding ways to love them. And then we need to invest our time and our resources in the lives of others. Remember the parable in Matthew 25. Whenever you've done it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. You've done it for me. We need to look for the least of these. Now, none of these kind of things happen without prayer, without a unifying in prayer to build each other up spiritually, to gather here and do that. And that's one of the reasons why we gather every week. So we need to gather and pray. We need to get together and serve. We need to get together and worship as a body united in service to the king. This should, be, this should be our resolution every year, to love more and love Jesus more and, and be more unified in our church. So they stayed and they prayed. That was point one. But they also applied God's truth to the problem or problems, but this one particular problem is recorded for us. They followed God's word in preparation. Let me read verses 15 through 26. This is a long story, and I'm going to explain some of it, and then we'll, we'll talk about what it means. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were gathered together were about 120. And he said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the Scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of the number, one of our number, and shared in this ministry. Now this is a little aside Luke gives us. This is not Peter talking. This is in a, kind of like a sidebar. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called Hekeldama. That is, field of blood. And we pick up where Peter's talking again. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter says, His dwelling became desolate. Let his dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it. Let someone else take his position. Therefore, among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among us, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, 
and Matthias. Then they prayed. (laughs) There's that prayer word again. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Long story. So Peter stands up. We're not surprised, are we? Peter's the guy that's going to be the spokesman. But let me tell you something. Peter is a different man. After the denial, after the restoration that Jesus gave him, he's, he's a different man. And I don't think he's alone when he stands up. I think he's been in conference with the other ten. I think they've been talking about this. So he stands up among 120 women and men gathered to acknowledge this obvious issue. There's 120 in the first church of Jerusalem. Now, that's not everybody that believes because Jesus appeared to 500. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that. So a lot of them are probably in Galilee. But there's 120 there at the first church of Jerusalem. How do you think about who this might be? Might be Nicodemus. Might be Joseph of Arimathea. It might be Lazarus and his family. They're, they live in Bethany, so they might be, they, they're close. How about blind Bartimaeus, who's no longer blind? Maybe his family's there. Maybe the family of the thief on the cross is there. Who knows? It's fun fun thinking about it. But they all were joined together in prayer and praise. And so Peter, like I said with the other ten disciples, he points out a description to Scripture regarding Judas' desertion. It's the elephant in the room, okay? I know it is because this, was, this, was, this caught them all off guard. The 11 were like, Judas? I mean, there were some signs, and John talks about the fact that Judas was constantly taking money out of the money bag. He was the elected treasurer, and, and, and he was really a thief. But, but that's kind of in hindsight. There's, the elephant in the room is the fact that what, what brought this on? Why did Judas desert us and, and do this? So now they're trying to do something about the vacancy of that position. So Peter starts with the Bible. That's where we should always try to start. So what prompted them to address it is the fact that the 11 had studied God's word and they remembered there were Psalms. Psalms 41 is one place. I think 55 is another place. It talks about this very thing of someone being set aside or appointed to betray God's Messiah. Jesus appointed 12 too. So Jesus, the son of God, appointed 12. They felt like it needed to be 12. 12 is a a very important number to the Jews, if you haven't noticed. And and also Jesus appointed 12 and told them, you will sit on 12 thrones and judge the world. And you can see that in, in, uh, I think it's in Luke or it's in Matthew. So he, he had a reason for choosing 12. So they felt this is something we need to do. Now, Judas. Let's spend a little time and learn a little bit more about Judas's fate. We know what happened, but I want to explain some things because there's things in, in this account that may sound a little contradictory or not in uh, agreement with what you've read in the Gospels. Because G- Peter called him a guide. He was, really, he was really not just a guide. He wasn't just like guiding them. He betrayed confidence. He sold Jesus out. Okay, And he, he led people there to arrest Jesus. But Judas was a sinner just like all humanity. He wasn't anything special. Yet Judas didn't resist or discipline his own heart 
or his own soul to refuse his greed or his desire for fame. He desired to be noted and noticed. But he didn't discipline himself from that. He didn't see that as anything wrong but just ambition. But then when he recanted for betraying Jesus to the Jews, came to them and said, oh, you've got to let him go. He's, he's innocent. He didn't, really, he didn't really repent of his sin of betraying Jesus. He didn't really express any faith in Jesus from that. He did not accept that he had framed the Messiah. His heart was hardened to all he had seen with Jesus, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened when they were, the, the Israelites were coming out of the land of Egypt. But see, here's what God did. God used Judas's evil intent to glorify his son. I know it seems hard to think about that, but in Luke 22, 3, Luke tells us Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas for this very reason. Now, Judas had spent three years with Jesus. He had invested his time, he had invested his effort in doing for Jesus, but he did not believe in Jesus. He had done all that investing, but he did not believe in Jesus. And when Jesus says in, in Matthew, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we fill in the blank? Didn't we do this for you and do that for you and do this for you? Judas was sitting there probably not even hearing that as a sermon to him. Because he did all those things. He had cast out demons. He had healed people. He had taken the message with the other disciples all over the country. But he did not believe in Jesus Christ. He didn't believe in him. Now, God uses many things and many people, good or evil. He uses those things to bring glory and honor and praise to him. And so I want you to hear me on this. God did not make Judas do one thing that Judas did not want to do. He wanted to do these things. He wasn't forced to. It wasn't a trick. God did not force Judas to commit this crime. Judas did exactly what he wanted. That was exactly what he wanted. And when it didn't turn out the way he thought... Instead of repenting and confessing and coming to the disciples and saying, I was wrong, or even coming to, trying to come to Jesus, he just went to the Jews and wanted his name cleared. Didn't want his soul cleared. And then Luke tells us, I mean, Judas just couldn't handle the guilt. So Luke tells us how his life ended. is a, a dramatic suicide that left a, a long legacy there in the area. Luke is, is getting Theophilus up to speed. Theophilus probably doesn't know a whole lot about Judas. but So here's what, here's what Luke's account here in, in uh, Acts and Matthew's account. He uses a couple of things in, from Matthew's account, but here's how they kind of work together. Judas brought the money to the tre back to the Jews. The Jews said we can't put it in the treasury because it's blood money. That was their rule. That's not necessarily a rule of anything else, but they, they decided that. So they held it separate. They kept that 30 pieces of silver separate from the treasury and probably held it till after the crucifixion and all of that was over with. Maybe even after Passover was over with. And then they bought a field. They bought a specific field. And here's whose field it was. It was the potter's. Probably the potter from the temple that made the clay pots and stuff for the temple, which had to be specially made. They were set aside for sanctimonious use. They were holy to the Lord. But this potter owned a field probably down 
where the two valleys that are around Jerusalem come together, the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley, where they meet, there's, a, there's traditionally known as a field there that has this really good clay. I don't know. That's what I've heard. That's what archaeologists have said. But this field had a tree nearby, pretty, probably a pretty tall tree, pretty high tree. And the field was obviously under it, but not all the field, but it was by the, the, the tree was by the field. And that's where Judas hung himself. He hung himself on a limb, probably high up in the tree at some point, and, and the limb broke, or the rope broke, or something. And he fell to the ground, and it just burst him, but from the force. And his blood, it says intestines in here, his bowels spilled out on the ground. Well, blood on the ground makes the ground impure, makes the ground unholy. You can't plant on it, and then that day you couldn't plant on it, you couldn't put any seed in it, you couldn't use it for clay, you couldn't use it for anything. It was unholy ground in a sense. So the Jews bought the field. They bought the field to bury strangers in, aliens, not Jews, aliens. People that died there in Jerusalem and they didn't know who they were and they just um, buried them somewhere. They didn't, have, they didn't have next of kin kind of notifications back then. They didn't have any way to communicate like that. So they bought it, and they, and they compensated the potter because now his field is ruined, the field that he owned. And because the Jerusalem people heard about all of this over the course of the, the weeks that it took place, they put it all together, and that's where they come up with the word hekeldama. It's Aramaic for field of blood. So there's the backstory of Judas. You're all caught up now, so is Theophilus. So now back to Peter. <laughs> back to Peter. He quotes now two passages from the, from the Psalms. These two passages warrant the fact that Judas was, was left and another should take his place, that Judas' office was vacated. God had ordained this. This was something God had planned on. So he ordained it. So he put it in Scripture. And Peter, in agreement with the others, the other apostles, I'm sure, and maybe even some of the other folks there, he now lists out the qualifications of an apostle. Who would qualify to fill Judas's spot? Well, the qualifications are here. He needs to have been with us since the baptism by John the Baptist all the way to when he went into heaven. So those are the requirements. Those are the qualifications. Someone had been with him all the time. Now, there's probably a couple of exceptions. For example, the Last Supper. More than likely, that was just Jesus and the Twelve. Um, I can't find anything that that really says that there was more people in the room. Also, probably Gethsemane was probably just Jesus and his 12. But they, hit the, they were around. They weren't, they weren't uh, in and out. They weren't, sometimes they were with Jesus and for him, and sometimes they weren't. These two, two people, and I think only two men qualified. I don't, I don't think there was three or four that got eliminated by the, the group. I think there was only two qualified. Two fit the criteria. Joseph, who also had the name as Justice, because the Latin name for Joseph is Justice, and not Justice, but Justus. And then Barsabbas, it just means son of, son of the Sabbath, which probably means he was born on a Sabbath. That's one guy, three names. I don't know why. And then Matthias, very simple. Matthias actually means gifts from God. It's kind of cool. But anyway, but the most important part is they find these two guys. The most important part is verse 24 and 25. Then they prayed. They prayed. They prayed. They sought the Lord. They sought 
his guidance. And listen to this prayer. Listen to what they pray. Lord, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Ain't that the truth? Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. They didn't even try to judge where Judas was. They just said he's left. He deserted. He's gone. Who do we put in here? They prayed. You know the hearts and you've already chosen. Who is it? And then they cast lots. Now, I know all of you wonder what cast lots mean. I can't find anybody that knows. It's, it's just not in history books. It's not in dictionaries. It's not in encyclopedias. Um, the best description was uh, the children of Israel, when they, when they set up the tabernacle, the high priest had this clothing that he wore when he was acting as high priest. And in behind the breastplate was a pouch that they put two rocks in, two little rocks of that, of that size. And they were, yet, it was for yes and no questions. So whatever they put on there, to, this rock was for yes and this rock was for no. And he would stick his hand in the bag and pull out one. And whatever that was, was the answer. I don't know if that's what they used here. Some people believe it evolved eventually into some sort of dice. Um, we don't know what it is. I mean, it really, it's, it sounds like something that was already in history before the children of Israel even came out of Egypt. But that's not the important thing. Whatever device they were using doesn't matter because you got to remember what it says in Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So whatever rock he pulls out or whatever dice he rolls and comes up, God is in control of it. It's not random. It's not by chance. It's not incidental. It's not coincidental. It's God. And that's why they prayed, and that's why they used this. But this is the last time you'll see the word lots used in the whole Bible. It never shows up again. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit now tells us what to do. The Holy Spirit now guides us. The Holy Spirit helps us make decisions. Along with this, okay? <laughs> never eliminate the Bible from the Holy Spirit. But they cast lots. Matthias became number 12. And now they were ready. They were ready for the gift of the Holy Spirit that was coming. Now, if they had just sat around and prayed and maybe thought and, you know, but never really took in any kind of understanding, this stain would have been left on them. This desertion would have been a, a bad mark. It would have left a bad legacy on the apostles. It was like, you know, you guys, I'm not sure I want to believe in you because but they replaced him. Because it was, it was Judas's defection, not his death, that they were replacing if judas had defected and just been off somewhere they would have still replaced him he didn't have to die for them to replace him it was his defection it was his choice to leave the gospel ministry that was the blight on this and so they replaced him you notice that they don't replace james john's brother when he's beheaded and it's over in like uh acts chapter eight or nine somewhere in that ballpark so um it's not about the death, it's about the defection. They remedied his defamation against Jesus by replacing him, when, when, and which prepared them for the future. I mean, what does, a, what does a standing military do during con, no conflict, peacetime? What we do, we sit around and we prepare, and we practice, and we research the threat. Most of the, my time in the military was spent doing just that, just sitting around waiting, trying to analyze who was the threat. 
Well, as the first church, that's what they were doing. They were, they were preparing. They were looking for potential weaknesses and praying for wisdom. And God showed them a spot that they could actually remedy. And we prepare. As, our, as a church, we prepare for our mission by prayer and the Bible. We need to be on guard. We need to be staying alert because there's an enemy out there. Turn, if you will, over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul gives us a really clear description of kind of how we're supposed to be sitting, not sitting around just waiting, but sitting and, and, and being on guard, being ready to fight this. Starting with verse 10 of chapter 6, Ephesians 6, 10. Paul is finishing up this letter to the Ephesian church, and he says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's our enemy. We need to never forget that. It's not another human being. It is evil. Now, they may be represented by other human beings, but we've got to love them and hate the evil. So in verse 13, he says, For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then he finishes this armor bearing with a key verse. Verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit. With every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. We need to be praying for each other. We can pray for each other's health, recoveries, but we also need to be praying for each other's spiritual health. People are fighting spiritual battles all over the place. Our church, many people in our church have spiritual battles going on. You need to pray for us. You don't even know what you're praying for, but pray. God does. We need to be praying. We need to be remembering what a beautiful name it is that nothing can stand against it. That's who we're praying to. Church, we need to pick up our armor and make sure we're wearing it. What are you doing to prepare for this? Day? What type of active waiting are you involved in? I mean, we have Bible study classes right after this that you can sharpen your skills in. You can learn more about God's Word. You can sharpen each other. You can grow in fellowship there. We have a D group on Sunday nights that you can join. We have prayer meeting once a week over here in this little circle where we fight the fight against the evil forces, where we pray for things that are plaguing us. And, it, and if, you, if that time doesn't work for you, let me know. We'll have another prayer meeting. I, I'll host as many prayer meetings as you want because prayer is where it starts. You see this right here in the passage. Prayer is where it starts. So if, you, if, if this time doesn't work for you, let me know. I'll start another one. Do you know if you're wearing the armor? Is your salvation clearly in place on your head? Is your faith out in front of you? 
You have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in your hand. Is your feet ready to go tell someone about the gospel? Your chest covered with the righteousness of Christ? Is the belt of truth preparing your heart to fight those battles? See, God gave you all of that at conversion. You realize that? You have this. This armor is not something you've got to go buy. It's not something you've got to go find. It's there. All of these things are what comes on us when we become a Christian, when we accept Christ, when our heart is changed. We are saved. We have, we have a sword of the Spirit. We have a shield of faith. That's, that's what saved us. That's what helped save us. We believed. These things are part of your life. Now we need to learn to use them. And that's why studying God's Word is so important. That's why we need to renew our mind by studying His Word. The first church, they spent 10 days praying. Now, next week, we're going to, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to find out Peter preached for about 10 minutes. If you read his sermon, he preaches for about 10 minutes. It's not very long. I know you, some of you are wishing I would do that, preach for 10 minutes. Well, if you pray for 10 days, I'll preach for 10 minutes because 3,000 people got saved. The power in our deeds comes by prayer. Prayer to God for it. So let's prepare, let's pray, and let's proclaim what God's got for us to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Before the first church did anything, before they had a building, before they had a structure of any kind, they waited and prayed together for 10 days. They forged unity by prayer. They weren't arguing over colors of carpets and walls and chairs and pews and hymnals or not. They weren't arguing about any of that. They were praying for unity because they knew they would need it. They were resolved. Continually, we need to do the same thing. We need to be resolved to fight the fight of faith. I mean, just think back to their situation. They had just watched their Savior ascend into the sky, out of sight. They'd just seen that. It was the perfect time to panic, wasn't it? But they didn't. Jesus gave them two things to do, and they went and did them. They waited, and they prayed. And they let him handle the rest. So do you want the peace that beats all other solutions? I mean, Jeremy read that verse. The peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts. Resolve to pray and trust God continually. And that's how we get there. So we're going to do that now. We're going to take time in our pastoral prayer. Ask God to help you be stronger. Help you trust God more. If you want to come up front and pray, we'll have a moment of silent prayer, and then I'll close this out after a minute or so. Let's pray.